The MacFab Engineering Podcast Design Contest, sponsored by Mauser Electronics, has been extended. The topic is useless machines. So we have extended the deadline from August 10th to August 31st, and this is closing fast. We have cash prizes up to $1,000 for winners. More information can be found at macfab.com slash blog. Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Joe Grand. And we are and your- we are your hosts, Parker Dillman <laughs> and Stephen Craig. This is episode 185, <laughs> which means it's been 112 episodes since I last interrupted your intro. <laughs> yes, thank you, Joe Grand. So our guest this week is Joe Grand, also known as Kingpin, a computer engineer, hardware hacker, product designer, teacher, advisor, runner, daddy. Honorary doctor, TV host, member of legendary hacker group, Loft Heavy Industries, and proprietor of Grand Idea Studio. Yeah. He has been creating, exploring, and manipulating electronic systems since the 1980s. Joe Grand has been on the previous MacFab Engineering Podcast number 73. And I have the t-shirt to prove it. I still got that. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Joe, for coming on to our podcast again. It's been two years i think at this yeah, point it's crazy you guys you guys have done a lot since then so yeah thanks for having me back it's it's always fun i'm still you know i'm still delirious from the 11 days in vegas from defcon so um ignore my uh my or i guess excuse my bad puns and you know rambling sentences that's what people download this podcast for <laughs> yeah exactly right they need something to do during a long car ride well, and I guess I guess we're not letting you off the hook yet because I guess some of the conversation we're going to have is about DevCon sure. and your involvement there. Well, we might as well do that while it's still in my head. Yes. So today we'll have Joe Grand on the podcast. Uh, so we're going to discuss offshore versus onshore manufacturing, how it pertains to DefCon badges, tariffs, and Chinese customs, and just the DefCon badge design. Sure, all the fun stuff or painful stuff. <clears throat> yep. Yep, that too. <laughs> I guess it depends on which side you're on. Yes, yes. So I think we should just jump right into the meat of it in sure. uh, onshore versus offshore manufacturing. So what I heard was the DC-27 badge was made in America, at least the PCB was. Yeah, so actually, so the um, fab and assembly, actually, no, the assembly and final assembly was done in a factory in the U.S., about 30 minutes from my house in Hillsboro. The PC board fab was still done in China. Um, they were the only factory we could find that could manufacture these crazy, you know, four-layer, via-in-pad, um, ridiculously small feature size boards within the time frame that we needed, which was basically 30,000 in less than six weeks um, with 100% electrical test and stuff. So, we were kind of limited in our options for that because the time frames were short, but there was definitely a conscious choice to stay in the U.S. as much as possible um, for this project, especially given how, you know, my previous time of working on DEF CON badges back in the day from 14 through 18 and with a lot of the other production manufacturing I've done has typically been in China. And, you know, if anyone was around for those projects or even some of the more recent ones, there's a lot of these unseen uh, you know, kind of hidden costs that nobody wishes happens, but always seem to happen. So this was a choice when, when Dark Tangent was like, let's 
let's just manufacture in the U.S. to avoid the customs issues, to avoid the communication issues, um, especially with this Chinese trade war. Uh, we were still getting, you know, charged a lot of duties to bring components in because I was doing all of the part sourcing myself so I could have control of supply chain. Uh, we paid a lot for that. But on the flip side, for DEFCON China, which we should also talk about, um, that one was manufactured 100% in China. And that was mostly because the sponsors of DEFCON China, um, you know, wanted to use as much Chinese resource as possible, where the U.S. doesn't have sponsors and, and DT sort of controls, you know, those decisions. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, definitely some trade-offs there. So let's wind back a little bit. Is Dark Tangent and DT, who is that? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so the Dark Tangent, also known as DT, also known as Jeff Moss, is the founder of DEF CON um, and also the founder of Black Hat, which is sort of the, you know, co commercial infosec conference that happens right before DEF CON. Uh, and he was the, he's been kind of the, the guiding light for a lot of stuff that I've done over the years. We've known each other for a really long time. Um, since I don't, I mean, way early days of Black Hat or DEF CON, and I hadn't even gone to those conferences when we first met. Uh, but it was his idea. Uh, you know, I'd been giving a lot of talks at Black Hat. We might have talked about this on the other podcast where he, I'd been giving a lot of talks um, about, you know, embedded security and hardware hacking back in the day. And he sort of saw that people were getting more and more interested in that. And he's like, hey, why don't you put together a hardware hacking training for Black Hat? Um, which was at the time he was running that. And I'm like, really? People want to have like a two-day class on hacking hardware. And uh, and he was right. So I put this class together and I'm still teaching it uh, 14 years later with some variations, but like the classes of attacks haven't really changed. So he sort of had that vision. For, for that class, I had made a G-shaped circuit board, which is in the shape of my logo. And we use that for um, soldering exercises, desoldering, reverse engineering. The board has a security mechanism in it. So the goal is to like break the security of the board. And that's kind of the final challenge for the class. So he saw that board and said, hey, we should do something like that for DEF CON. Just kind of out of the blue, you know, because he has these amazing ideas. And um, again, he just sort of saw that people would be interested in that. He, he, he knew. And uh, so the next year we made this simple badge for DEF CON. Um, and that, you know, kind of kicked things off as far as far as badge life. But this year, I think because of the, the, the troubles that he had been having with badges over the past number of years, he just wanted to, to keep things closer in hand, you know, and like I could drive 30 minutes and I went to the factory. Bring it back to the roots. Yeah, well, bring it back to being able to be in control of it. Um, and I could drive 30 minutes and I did, you know, four or five times. I met with the, met with the factory before we even started. Um, I gave, laid out the, the prototype and what I had in mind to do and got their feedback as early as possible. Because that's something, you know, a lot of times people will put together a design and just send it out to be fabbed. Like you guys probably see this all the time. Like you get you get a design that's already production worthy. I'm Finished. doing that in quotes, yeah. my air quotes on a, on a podcast. So, you know, the designer thinks it's finished. They send it to the fab that gets manufactured, assembled. Um, but for something with up to 30,000, like we made 28,600. And I wanted to get the factory involved as early as possible so they could say, well, we recommend, you know, we can handle up to this size component and we recommend you do things this way. And they really needed to be part of that process so we could figure out the best way that they could manufacture in the most efficient way so we would have the best yields and that they would actually get it done in time. So, you know, I took their feedback right from the start and they did circuit board review and uh, not really schematic review, but mostly circuit board review and, and, and parts kind of supply chain review to make sure that, that the parts were coming in at the right times. And of course, they helped panelize the board. So I gave them a, a one-up design of a single badge 
and they panelized that based on their requirements for their machines, uh, adding the fiducials outside of that. They worked with the circuit board fab uh, to deal with all that low-level stuff, which sometimes I do, but I, I but I normally don't. For high-volume stuff, I, I don't want to mess with that because it's sort of a waste if I do it. Yeah, each one, well, each fabricator has their own method of doing that's it. right yeah so so i didn't you know there's no point in trying to do that and then have them recreate the wheel so i think you know getting involved with a with a factory as early as possible is is the way to go um and doing that in the u.s is just way easier you know to sh to sit down and show them and say here's the stuff and to get a tour of their facility and say hey so you know this is a non-standard process i have the circuit board and then i have a hand cut quartz gem crystal that needs to be uh, affixed to the to the to the board so it's not their typical, you know, kind of box build where they, they assemble boards and put it together into a box and they ship it. Um, but they had a separate room available for sort of these weird requests. And I could see that the first day I met with them. And this is part of the reason I chose this factory versus other ones in the area where they were a smaller company, but very nimble because they said, oh, here's where we'll put the, the double sided stickers onto the gemstones. And then here's where we'll do the final assembly of the gemstone onto the circuit board. Um, and it was awesome. So it was really a, a great learning experience for me. Uh, the other thing, too, is I needed to make sure that they understood the importance of the project, that it had to be done by DEF CON. Uh, you know, a lot of times deadlines will slip and product release dates will get pushed back and everything. But like we don't have that luxury with DEF CON, and which is part of the reason why I'm, I'm glad you're not doing video. I definitely got a lot of gray hair over the past few weeks <laughs> of trying to push this thing through. Um, but they, you know, they fully understood and they were fully committed and, and fully determined to get everything done. And we actually got badges a week before DEF CON, uh, which is like mind boggling. It, that hasn't happened since DEF CON 14. Was that, was that on schedule? That was actually a little bit ahead of schedule because I had told them, you know, worst case, let's get it. Let, let's get the Inhumans in over the weekend before DEF CON. So the week before, um, you know, absolute worst case, things can arrive Wednesday because real registration starts Thursday. And that would mean that, that the DEF CON goons, the organizers would have to be up all night long prepping things. And this factory just knew the importance of it and just cranked. And they actually hired part of the, the additional cost. We did go a little bit over budget, even though the budget a lot of times is just sort of this random number grabbed from somewhere that sounds reasonable. Um, we went over budget because <laughs> we, had the, we had to pay quite a bit, over six digits in expedite fees. Um, to make sure that we could, you know, hit the schedule. And that's not insignificant. And it, it hurts, you know, to say that because it's like I'm spending DEF CON's money um, and I, I want to be very careful with with how I use it. Um, but on the other hand, you know, engineering is is what it is. And when you have to expedite to get stuff done, you have this kind of rolling ball. And if you if you don't get your first stage done, you can't do your second stage and then everything gets pushed. Yeah, if that, if that first, you know, section of your Gantt chart slides down a week, Oh. Everything has to cascade that's down. That's right. And that's what happened, especially because we were doing DEF CON China at the same time. And uh, so there was a lot of overlap with with some of the work. But then eventually it was this mad rush of, of DEF CON US. And the factory, which I thought was really cool, is they sort of knew their capabilities. Like like they're they're small. They have, you know, some main engineers and they have some, some staff working under them. But they knew from when I sat down and said we need 20, 28,000 of these things. Um that they were going to hire, they needed to hire extra staff. So they hired about 20 extra temp employees sort of on a as-needed basis. Um, so a few of them came in at the beginning when when things were slow, like while we were waiting for boards to come in, and they, they would prep the gems and things like that. And then as stuff started ramping up, they'd bring more and more people in to do the depanalyzing, the testing. And um, it was actually kind of cool because 
sort of a side effect of that, beside it costing money, is we had a bunch of you know high school and college um, temp workers who were interested in engineering. Like they got to work at a factory to kind of learn this process and see a pretty wild, unique pro- um, product being built. And I got to sit down and like talk with them while they're working or while they're on break and just explain what they were doing and like why this was cool and why this was important. And, and some of them were like, well, where do I, where do I even look to learn more about engineering? You know, so I gave out some, some resources and um, that was kind of cool. So it's almost like by, re- by requiring more people for the project, it ended up inspiring more people, you know, for future, like who knows what they're going to end up doing. But it definitely was a crazy, crazy time. And I'm, I'm glad it's over. <laughs> well, well, I, I, I think it's kind of, um, uh, I think we should take one quick step back because we've been talking about like quartz and, and gems and things like that. And sure. You're probably sick of talking about this, but for, for everyone who doesn't know, the, the DevCon badge is a PCB that's affixed to a chunk of quartz, right? Correct. Yeah. So, so the circuit board, actually, I'll even take it a step further back. The theme of this year, DEFCON has started having themes for their conferences. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the previous themes they've done for the past few years have been very dark, like, um, you know, Big Brother. Matrix-y. Yeah, Big Brother's watching, which is sort of how technology is, right? This very dark kind of big companies controlling your data and all this stuff. So the theme this year was called Technology's Promise, which is really like, what, what if technology was just used to actually help you and make you a better person, not control you? Um, and when I heard that and when, when, when DT showed me his first kind of inspirational image that he found, which was this advertisement from the 70s or 80s of a woman sitting on like a lotus flower holding a laptop and there's like clouds and pastel colors and like all this great stuff. I'm like, this is amazing. Like, this is what we need is like happy, fun technology. Um, and at the time I'd been going to like the new age gem store with my kids and like picking different types of gems uh, just for fun. But that image like to me seemed perfect of like, we need some soft element to this project. Like some, not just a hard circuit board like everyone's been doing for the past however many years now, um, but some other element to it to just sort of soften it. Um, and it was just sort of like, let's use a gem with the circuit. We didn't know what that would entail and that whole process, which I talk about in, in my DEF CON um, badge talk, which was the the opening ceremony um, track uh, that was recorded and will eventually be online as far as I know. Uh, and all the slides, by the way, and like design documents are on my website, um, which you can just search for DEFCON 27 badge and you'll see it. Um, but it was, you know, I didn't know what that would entail, but it just seemed like a good idea. So, yeah, there's a, a 55. Actually, let me measure it. It's been so long. Um, so so let me get this straight. Like you're, you pick the gem on just a, almost on a whim, it feels like, though. Yes, it wasn't I, like it wasn't like a a committee, so to speak. You're like, I want to use the gym. And they went, cool. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> Jeff and I were sitting around at a coffee shop talking about this theme. And it just, I just really wanted to use a gem. I didn't know what, I didn't even know what that meant. Like, you know, all the gems you get in stores are either, are, are either raw pieces of rough gem mm-hmm. or they're shaped into a heart or something like that. Um, I was like, well, we could get a, get some gems and like drill into them and put the circuitry in it. But we had no idea what that, what that was. Um, we eventually settled on, on the 60 millimeter discs with five, five millimeters thick that would sit on top of the circuit board. And I, and I based the gemstone size on what I thought would be a cool size for the circuit board. So there was some back and forth with me of building pro, a, a you know, paper prototype to see what would be a cool size and not an overbearing piece of jewelry that you're wearing. Um, and it wasn't until like months later where I actually went to the Tucson gem show and figured out, you know, found a, a, a vendor that I needed through 
meeting a bunch of people and them pointing me in the right directions. And I had 36 hours to go from knowing nothing to finding a person or a, a company that could support our project. And um, mind-blowing. Mind but yeah, so we settled on, on Brazilian quartz and we have different colors that are dyed for the different badge types because, you know, a lot of times conferences will have different colors for attendee types. DEF CON has 10 different attendee types. Um, and we dyed the gemstones to match the circuit boards, which match the uh, attendee types for for five of them. So we have 10 different colored circuit boards and five different colored gemstones because we just couldn't dye the gemstones in all of those varieties of colors. But we have red, um, orange, no, red, yellow, orange, green, blue, purple. And then natural are the colors, I think. So it was pretty crazy. Yeah, and it, you know, just another element and, um, and it turned out fine, but it could have turned out horribly, you know, and that's sort of the risk a lot of times. And those also, by the way, were manufactured in China. Um, the, the way I found this factory was just, you know, through a series of, of people that I'd met at this show, um, the Tucson Gem Show, and I had talked to people who own mines in different places and they're like, yeah, we, we can get the material, but we don't have the manpower or woman power to create, to physically create the stuff from the, from the stone. And then uh, one guy I talked to was like, you got to talk to this guy at this place, tell him I sent you. Um, and you have, you know, they close in half an hour at this venue down, the, down, down through the city. So I hop in a car, get over there, uh, meet the people I'm supposed to meet, tell them about this ridiculous project, which mo everybody I talk to in the gem you know, world, they don't normally see electronics and they don't see a guy like me running around trying to, trying to buy 30,000 of something. <laughs> you know, it was like just, it, like I was sort of stood out because of that, which helped because I said, I'm building something for a hacker conference. They're like, what are you even doing here? <laughs> um, and so I found these, I found this company and they ended up a few weeks later making samples for me. And that's when I started to kind of be able to coalesce, you know, the design and make it something that started to, to, to feel more real. So I, I got a quick question. How much does 30,000 of these things weigh? Like what's the tariff like report on that? I'm trying to think of the, I know I have it in the email. It's a shitload. Oh, wait, can I swear? <laughs> yeah, also, when, when it comes to something this big, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's an ass load. It's huge. Um, we had a, Okay, well, let's see. We had 107 boxes, and I think each box was 35 or 40 pounds because there's a limit. Like, they didn't want to make the box too big, and they need to be small enough. There's some limit Yeah, so for one shipping. person can pick it up. Yeah, so I think let's do some math. Lift. So 107 boxes. Say let's, let's say 40 pounds just to be safe. So that's 4,280 pounds. So two tons of hand-cut stone wrapped well, in that, that's, that's post-process, right? That's like, post-process. That's, that's not the raw ore. No, the raw material was bigger. And actually, I went to visit the factory because I was in China for DEF CON China and then went into Shenzhen to visit this factory. And uh, they had a huge amount. I think it was like, they said 20 tons, but I'm not sure if the, if the um, translation was correct. But I saw giant bags full of the, the cuts, you know, the extra pieces and they're like, can you please ask your customer if they want to do anything with these leftover pieces? Because they can't do anything with them. You know, it's like the corners and the pieces that broke and stuff like that. Um, so in one way, you know, I sort of feel bad because we have all this leftover material kind of that we, you know, wasted. Um, but then on the other hand, I think like the world is some giant percentage of quartz crystal, you know. So we're just <laughs> yeah. taking it from one, we're just taking it from one, you know, area in a dark cave and just bringing it out into light you know so well, it I, goes I into know. some other dark 
factory. That goes in. Yeah, we're just we're just moving the material around. <laughs> or some other dark conference. Right, or some dark conference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so cool. So you talked a little about uh, DC China. What was the difference between manufacturing the DC China badge? Right. Okay. So the so the DefCon China badge um, was actually a flexible circuit board. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I'll try to explain it while I'm showing you on the on this little video here. But it's a it's a um, flexible circuit board and um, a bunch of LEDs on it. And the it's actually there's a white cover lay on it, so it looks like white. You know, a white flexible board with some different color solder mask depending on the attendee type as our as our colors. Um, in the shape kind of as like a, a digital tree. And there's 32 LEDs. 16 of them are in the roots, and 16 of them are in the branches. Um, and the concept, sort of like DEFCON China, or DEFCON US, is to kind of build community, because DEFCON China was definitely a newer community where you almost had to, you know, tell people it's okay to hack on something. Uh, you know, I don't exactly know the politics there, but I'm pretty much going to assume that that's normally not an accepted practice. Uh, you normally want to follow the rules. So at DEFCON, we're like, no, you can. You can You can actually, like, take your badge and, and plug it into your computer and do stuff with it and change it and modify the code. Um, and then there's this was actually the first time I worked with an Arduino as a development process, not just like an Arduino Uno or something. So this is a, this is an Arduino platform where I put all of the circuitry in one horizontal row um, to prevent it, to make it a little harder to bend. Like I put it right where the battery holder is, so it's this long strip of circuitry, and then the rest is more flexible where the LEDs are. And there's an FPC connector on there, a um, flexible printed circuit connector that plugs into these different circuit boards I made around the conference. So as you complete different tasks. Uh, the light, the root lights turned on and as you complete four of the roots, part of the branches turn on. When you complete all the roots, all the branches turn on and it sparkles and everyone's happy and, you know, celebrates. Um, the reason I did this one, it's funny because when, when Jeff and I were talking, he asked me to do the, the DEF CON US show first. And I said, yes, of course. And um, that would be fun. And uh, not realizing how hard it was, not remembering how hard it was. Um, and then he's like, uh, what about, you want to do the China one too? I'm like, no, I probably shouldn't do that because it was only like a few months before the U.S. show. He's like, well, let's just think of something simple that we can do and then it will be fine. And I'm like, well, I've always wanted to work with Flex. So let's just do something simple with Flex. But, you know, nothing Nothing's is simple. ever simple. No, and yes. it seems simple in my head, right? But then like you, you start building it and it's like, oh, my God, this is not simple. And I was hating life for a long time. Um, I did find a, a company um, in Chicago. Am I allowed to mention company names? Sure. sure. Okay. So I meant I found a company called Electronic Interconnect through one of my local reps here, and um, they do some manufacturing in in the U.S., but they also have some subcontractors and partners in China. So this was another one where we had we manufactured these in China, but that was sort of what we wanted to do anyway because of the request from the sponsors. Um, but having not worked with Flex before, it was really nice to have a U.S. connection um, where they could sort of translate things into the terminology that the factory in China needed. Um, whereas, you know, with the US one, having an extra middleman sometimes made things harder because I know how to manufacture a rigid board. I didn't know how to manufacture a flex board. So having an extra person was helpful. Um, so there was just a lot of emails and, you know, they dealt with me very nicely because I was sending a lot of mails and really the important thing about this board, because specifying flex is easy. Um, you know, you do have to have a, a slightly different layout depending on, on the orientation of your components and how you're flexing and you want to make sure you're not placing traces on stress points. And I learned a new command. I use Altium Designer and learned a new command called teardrop. And you can just add teardrops to every single pad and every single trace connection that 
thickens those areas and rounds them out so you don't have these right angles. Uh, which is I that to was reduce amazing. like a is that to reduce like a stress riser yeah, and copper? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but really, the the key of this board was the thickness because the data sheet for the FPC connector has a little bit of a stiff a stiffener requirement, so you have to have a stiffener on there. And then you have your like the stiffener is usually like a black piece on a flex, and then you have your fingers on the on the other side. So everything was driven from that requirement of this particular thickness. And that needed a lot of back and forth because it was like even the, the thickness of the adhesive, interlayer adhesive, had to be considered. The thickness of the coverlay, um, the thickness of the stiffener, the thickness of the copper, like all these things that normally a lot of times with, with a typical you know two-layer board for rigid, you're just like, the 62 mil and make the board and I want two layers and some vias. So this was really, really tricky. Um, luckily, we had time to make uh, two, two runs of prototype. So I could get one version back and I had a few different, like they had black coverlay, white coverlay and clear or, or just the polyamide, you know, orangish looking. Um, and I got to decide on that, got to make some changes to the board. It turns out that repairing and doing like kind of circuit board repairs on a flex board is painful, really, really painful. <laughs> so because you think, oh, I'm just going to cut this trace. And reroute it like on a normal board you can do that because there's a, a there's a thick fiberglass substrate an fr4 substrate in there on a flex board your substrate is so thin that you cut, end up cutting through the board and uh i had to do a little rework on the board and luckily i didn't cut into too much stuff and i was able to reroute and use super super glue but i would say like if you're actually doing a flex board and have time you would want to build your prototype on a rigid make sure all your layout is right and then go to your like pre-production prototype on a flex that was, the, that was the key thing I learned. Um, but the rest of it, once we got the thickness down, we verified that, made the changes. Like, the rest of it was pretty pretty smooth sailing. Um, and they came out pretty cool. And, like, at China, we didn't really have many parts come off. The factory did, you know, they, they, worked, they worked through the night to get these things done. We only made 3,000 for the, for the China show, um, which is still significant when you only have two boards per flex panel. So they had 1,500 panels they had to make. Um... What I also did for this one is the factory was responsible for testing and programming because there was no way I would have been able to get my firmware done in time to like get that done by a third party before sending it to China. So I did have the Arduino bootloader loaded into the Atmel chips. So the factory was able to assemble them and then they had a bootloader. So through the USB connection, which had an FTDI um, FTG31X on there, they could load the final firmware, do their testing and you know even load the configuration for the FT231X. So I made a little Raspberry Pi with some scripts that would program the 231X to set the USB uh, configuration and then load the Arduino code into the Atmel part and then do a little system test. So it was actually kind of cool and I sent them a bunch of those because trying to get a factory thousands of miles away to uh, you know, load a piece of software on their own computers or something is just asking for trouble. So I thought, I thought that if we could consolidate into a unit, all they have to do is plug it into a TV and give it power and they're good, like that That saved a lot of trouble too and it scales, right? Because if it's like you buy five Raspberry Pis and if they need to double their throughput, you just buy another five and send it to them. So that that made things really cool. So for the DC China badge, was there any tariffs that you had to worry about or was most of your stuff purchased and sourced in China so you didn't have to worry about that? Um. So, great question. Uh, I ordered all of the parts locally or sometimes had to order them from China, pay tariffs, bring them here, and then ship them to China. 
uh, because every, every project I do, I really like to, to maintain that control of what I'm ordering, who I'm ordering from, and verify it's the right chain. thing. Yeah. Um, so they didn't order anything themselves. So yeah, I had to pay quite a bit of tariff on that project. And the thought was like, oh, we can just buy stuff and ship it to China directly and avoid the tariff. But it doesn't work that way unless you're buying components in China and they stay in China. Right. So even, right, even like we were trying to save, save money on tariffs and... Um, I was like, well, can't we just, since King Bright is in China, can't we just order them there and have them shipped to the factory there? But since their headquarters is in Hong Kong, you still have to order them and then you pay tariffs. So there's probably some tricks that you can get around not paying them. Uh, put but, it in your suitcase? Yeah, put them in your suitcase and smuggle them, but you still had to get them. You still had to get there. You know, it's just too many, too many hoops and we just did it on the up and up and, and got everything there on time. We did have some parts held in customs though. So when we were shipping the components into uh, China, um, we had to pay additional duties. Actually, I think sometimes we actually double had to double dip. Like we had to pay twice because we paid for parts to come to us and then paid for parts to go back in, even though normally that doesn't happen. But if the paperwork's not right or you have, a, you have somebody that uh, is really scrutinizing things. But we had a few boxes that were, were quite a few days late. And we had all the invoices and everything, but they just didn't trust us that things were coming from where they said or that, you know, the box was so big. How could the components be so cheap? Um, and just looking for <laughs> any way to kind of mess with us. And that was right during, like, the announcement of the tariffs increasing and the China trade war and all this stuff. And, you know, all the engineers and all the, all the workers at the factories, like, we all kind of pay the brunt of it. You know, mm -hmm. no, nobody except maybe the politicians are benefiting from this uh, because then it just puts pressure on the factories when they get stuff late. They have to work harder to do it. And I doubt they're getting, you know, any increase in pay. And uh, it's just a really weird kind of time for that stuff. And, and it, it was definitely I, I really enjoyed being able to keep it local uh, to just avoid those headaches, you know, just avoid the customs headaches and the duties headaches and things getting held. Even if you like, we had all the right paperwork and stuff was still held just for no yeah. reason. And it, it like, you can't run a business that way, um, and try to get stuff delivered on time. So there, there were definitely some challenges and some nail biting moments. Uh, and actually at one point, like our, uh, the raspberry Pis were held in customs and with the file systems, like for the testing and the programming, which I had shipped it early enough to anticipate that. But because those were held, I went out and bought 10 more Raspberry Pis and 10 more micro SD cards and imaged those and made 10 more programming stations. Uh, they all eventually got released in time. So the factory just had, you know, twice as many so they could do it twice as fast. So it turned out okay. It was just, you know, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, the, um, I, I really understand, like, wanting to control your own supply line too because I know there was, I'm not going to say names or anything, but there was a badge maker who got all his stuff in for DEFCON and the PCB assembly house in China put counterfeit parts on his board and he didn't have the time to get new parts and resolder, you know, all those components. Well, that's right. And that's, that's a common thing. Like I think, I think most of the time when factories are replacing parts, they're not doing it intentionally maliciously. It's, Oh, I have a relationship with this company. If I'm responsible for buying the bomb, I'm going to buy it from my friend who I know can get a better deal than somebody else. As cheap else. as possible. Yeah, and yeah. it just happens that that friend has the, the counterfeit parts or gray market parts. Um, and, I mean, that happens at every level. It happened it, – it, it has happened to me, but, you know, I was able to – not on this project, but I was able to be like, wait a second. No, you can't start switching components on me. Like, you have to use the ones that I – exactly the ones that I recommended on the bomb. 
Um, and that sometimes can be detected if you're doing pre-production prototypes and testing. Uh, but again, it's one of those things that you don't really want to happen. And you could you could specify on your design documentation, you know, do not change parts, but you can't control that unless you're there, right? And you don't know their their own supply chains and their own relationships. And that's really why I like sourcing my own stuff and keeping control of that. And you, you end up paying more, um, but at least you know <clears throat> if there's a counterfeit part or if there's a faulty part or you get them with weird date codes or something, you can trace those back yourself. Um, and it makes things much easier than trying to, you know, jump through a bunch of hoops for a factory that's that's all the way halfway around the world. Yeah. So before we move on to the next topic, is there any other, like, what would you do different if you could redo DC-27? Um, I would definitely get a pre-production prototype. Absolutely. So we basically went from six prototypes because we didn't have the time. I got home. So I'll give you a quick, quick little timeline. Um the the day the day before i left for defcon china i had to send the prototype dc27 design to the fab to the assembly house so they could fab the boards assemble six prototypes so when i got home uh from that trip two and a half weeks later i could get the prototype and then that was june 10th and then have until june 17th to make sure the hardware worked which meant writing all of the low-level code to verify that all the hardware was working properly make whatever changes I had need, needed to do to the board, and then place an order for the 28,600 on June 17th. So I had seven days. We went from six boards to 28,600. We didn't test the final changes that I made um, on the production units. In FR4, yeah. Yeah, in FR4. I mean, it was like n- not recommended, right? Because if- I, 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 re- I remember specifically Parker um was in the hotel room and and we were uh and i and i had watched your your talk and i just said damn that's ballsy yeah and it wasn't like i was doing it to be like yeah i'm ballsy like it, it was just like necessity right like i have to do this now or we're gonna end up paying even more in expedite fees and if something goes wrong we're not gonna have time like looking at the calendar it's like oh defcon six weeks away but that's not a lot of time right and I had to do it and I really tried to push the factor. I'm like, is there any way we can get a pre-production prototype? They're like, that's going to take two more weeks because the minimum time to make these complex four layer boards was two weeks. Um, we had, we didn't, we just didn't have the luxury to do it. So I wish we could do, have done a pre-production prototype. That's what I do with all my other projects. Um, and that lets you catch these minute production errors. So to give you an example, I didn't go into this in the DEF CON presentation. Um, but the prototypes came back, they, they looked great, they worked great. Um, the production units, luckily all my changes, which bo- mostly were just moving components out of the way and rerouting some stuff, like luckily those have all worked, but the factory had a different cam engineer working on the production version than the prototype. So he wasn't familiar with what we had done on the prototype and like that you shouldn't change any traces, you shouldn't change any graphics. Um, so he made some he made some unauthorized changes to the board, uh, not out of I- intentional you know maliciousness. It was just because he wanted it to be as manufactured as best as possible, given their manufacturing constraints. But those weren't relayed to us, so we couldn't approve them. So we got boards back, and we're like, wait a second, what are these extra vias on here, and why and where are they connected? And like you just changed connections to components that could have affected signal integrity. And we made 28,000 of these and you didn't even tell us. So 
we would have known if we had done a pre-production prototype, we could have verified with X-ray, which is how we discovered it. Um, and then we could have just made sure that things were, were kosher before we went all the way. Um, and then let the factory know, like, don't do that, right? Like, that's not a good thing. And part of that was just communication issues because we were, again, dealing with um, with EI in the U.S. And then they were dealing with their partner in China. Some of the importance of these issues weren't conveyed, even though in the design documents it says certain things. Um, it doesn't say don't change artwork. You know, it doesn't say don't change layout, which it probably should. Like, everything needs to be specified. Um, and, the, you know, they, the, some of the, the – um, some more aesthetic things were, were changed slightly that no one really is going to notice. But it was those same sorts of things. The factory doing it, um, either thinking it was the right thing to do or, or thinking that was what it was supposed to look like uh, without checking with the customer. And those things, I think, are just communication issues that that can happen with the U.S. fab also, but are more easily solved with the U.S. fab, I think, because it's just much easier to say, hey, you know, if you make any change, let me know. Where in, in this case, in China, there's long delays and they were stressed, you know, to get this thing manufactured as best as possible and get out the door to us. Uh, so yeah, I think having a pre-production prototype would have made things a lot easier. We could have ironed out a few of the things that drive that that drove me nuts from just an aesthetic, um, you know, as just a, a a really kind of anal engineer that didn't affect the the system. But I like to have things as perfect as I as I possibly can, and it would have made me sleep a little better before placing this massive order without being able to test anything. Uh, luckily, though, like you know, I'm crossing my fingers. Like everything everything worked. Um, from an electrical perspective and from an assembly perspective and a functional perspective. So we really, really got lucky. And it, you know, I'm basically just complaining about these minor aesthetic things that I'm not even going to mention because I don't want people to go, go looking for them and then think I'm crazy for even mentioning them. But little things, minute changes that I just don't like people doing on my boards without verifying, you know, with the customer. I know how people, I guess you can go on your website. It's all open source, right? Yeah, everything's open source um, except the Gerber's. We don't put the Gerbers up because, uh, you know, one of the things people like to do is make counterfeit badges and try to get their their uh, make their black badge, which gives them lifetime entry into DEF CON. So we don't release the Gerbers, uh, but all the other design documentations up there, schematics and firmware and, and uh, test procedure and all of that stuff. So you can definitely learn a lot from, from looking at that stuff. Uh, this was also, by the way, I didn't mention this. This was like my, my first time kind of working with uh, BGA parts. I wanted to go like super super minuscule, which maybe we're jumping ahead to other topics, but I really wanted to try something new besides the gem of like, let's see if I can use the smallest parts possible. Um, yeah, I was going to get into that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you just keep getting more ballsy with this. Well, no, yeah. and that was the thing is like, you know, Def, like we always say, like DEF CON's a great place for, for people to go and to learn and try something new. So I'm just eating my own dog food and doing it on a much bigger scale and taking way more risks than I probably should. Um, but it just seemed cool. Like if I, I wanted to have this small badge, so let's use the smallest possible parts. Um, and the factory was totally on board with it and like they could, they could deal with it. But I didn't even know, like, could my 36 ball, uh, footprint, my BJ footprint, was that going to be good? We have chip scale packaging on here. Uh, just crazy, ridiculous stuff. And debugging that stuff is hard. So the prototype, luckily I put tiny, super tiny test points on there that I could solder some wire wrap wire to. Uh, I used some zero ohm, some 1206, and some 805 uh, zero ohm resistors as jumpers so I could isolate you know, different components to make sure of power consumption and stuff like that. But on the production version, I took away all of that. 
which is, you know, not recommended either. Like if I had to troubleshoot the production board, I, I would have had to do it just on, on the sides of components that, that I could get to. Uh, but not all of those components are connected. Some connections go from the BGA of one part into an inner layer and then up underneath to the via and pad of another part. No way to test that unless you're cutting into the board and, and tapping down. So yeah, I made probably some people would say some pretty some pretty stupid leaps uh, to get this done. But you know, part of it was just the the kind of confidence of knowing the prototype worked. Part of it was the necessity, and part of it was probably a little bit of just naive. You know, let's just hope it works. And uh, the factory seemed to back me up. They're like, yeah, well, you didn't you know you didn't make any major changes. Like this will probably work. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm glad it did. And I just wouldn't recommend this this condensed of a of a process. I wouldn't even wish it on my worst enemy. Actually, no, that's not true. I probably would. Um, I wouldn't wish it on my friends. Not, it's just not healthy. <laughs> it just, it just kind of seems fitting with the whole Vegas roll of the dice kind of thing. Going yeah. On. And there, you know, it was a very controlled roll of the dice, I would say, you know, like it wasn't, we weren't totally jumping, jumping off a bridge, but it was, it was a controlled gamble. And luckily things came together enough where it worked, but it, it wasn't a traditional engineering process as much as I would have liked to, to have it be one. So let's go, let's go jump into that badge. So you said it's a four-layer board, mm-hmm. and it has, um, it has via and pad that are capped. Correct. Correct. And so, is there any blind and buried vias, or is just capped vias? So we have via and pad, and then we also have some blind. Um, uh, no, not blind. We have some buried vias also, and the buried vias actually are what I think I had a few of them, but that's what the fab added two additional buried vias. Because it was easier for their process for the inner layers, for some reason, move it from a, uh, a via in pad blind to a buried. Or there was something where they changed it and didn't think it would affect signal integrity. Luckily, it was just on the ground vias going down, so it didn't affect anything. But if it was on, you know, if it happened to be on the antenna lines going to our inductor for the actual magnetic communication, like that could have been a problem. And they didn't even ask. So it's just, yeah, there, there was um, the capped via in pad. Uh, epoxy filled and then um and that's why the boards would would take so long to manufacture is because that's th- right those, those additional manufacturing steps and how much dropout they would have on their end that's right and they were seeing they were seeing a little bit of failure on the prototypes which is why they made this change in production um it just wasn't translated to us but they they thought they would get a better yield by changing that a little bit and yeah i mean it's 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 a complex process to do so i'm super you know, proud of what they were able to pull off, even though they had these other un- unauthorized sort of changes, which is typical for factories. Um, the fact that, that they could do this, and if you look at a board, you'll see like the traces are super thin and there's a lot going on. And there's even a lot going on in inner layers, which you're not gonna be able to see unless you x-ray it. Uh, I'll leave that as an exercise for the user. You're not gonna post any of those cool pictures? No, in my slides, I actually have a few pictures of x-ray. So you can see the X-ray um, of the KL27, which is a microcontroller. You can see the X-ray of the NHX2261, which is our NFMI uh, magnetic induction chip. And then I actually put a DEF CON logo on one of the inner layers too. And that, those are all in the slides, just to sort of show like there's some there's some fun stuff in there. I, I really like the via stitching that that's going on um, near the inductor on the left side. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really like. It's really anal. I like that. Well, that was so that was recommended by NXP. Luckily, with this process, with this project, and I mentioned this in the main badge talk, is NXP really stepped up and helped essentially a really small volume customer use one of their crazy parts. 
And they had a team, a very small team in Belgium who was working on this radio circuitry. They deal with like, you know, million volume customers. And they did a circuit board, you know, layout review for me. And they gave me documentation and wrote some code for the radio chip. And um, they they were really wanted, they wanted to make sure that the radio layout was going to be correct. And they had said, you know, do your ground plane, but no ground plane underneath the antenna traces, but then use via stitching. And you're sort of creating, and then you, your spacing has to be right between the, you know, between the two signals. And you're basically creating a, a, a ground uh, sheath around the like a PCB coax almost. Yeah, and it was really neat to sort of to learn about that and see how see that how that's happening. And they recommended doing via stitching all along those traces. Um, and our the final boards, the production boards, ended up having a, a, a magnetic field communication distance of about a foot and a half, which is pretty crazy because this NFMI technology, um, you know, is designed for hearing aids. It's magnetic induction, so it's essentially an air core, an air core transformer that you're creating. And it's designed for like, you know, ear to ear communication or, or body area network, like, like arm to, to chest communication, like, like low, small distance. And uh, when we, I was originally talking with the engineers, they were thinking like, yeah, we'd maybe get six to eight inches. Uh, but we essentially doubled that probably because the circuit board layout uh, was good and followed exactly what they recommended. And there's no way I would have been able to know that on my own. You know, it's just like I'm not an RF radio wireless person. What about the chi from the quartz? The, oh, the chi, that too. Yeah, the, you know, the, the crystal <laughs> energy, I'm sure, like boosted the range. Yeah, boosted right for up. For sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's go into the NFMI. Sure. So why did you do NFMI versus like a normal like NFC or RFID type technology? Right. So I'm going to call NFMI infamy because it's way easier for me to say and okay. it sounds cooler. So infamy, um, basically the way that came about is you know, there's a lot of wireless modules out there. We've seen ESP32 and ESP8266 and all the all the Bluetooth mo- um, chipsets and modules, Wi-Fi chipsets and modules, NFC stuff. Like, all the RF stuff, to me, seemed pretty played out, um, even though a lot of people still use it, which is fine. Um, but I didn't want to just do something like that. Uh, so typically what happens when I start a, a DEF CON project is I call friends of mine that work at various companies. And I called a friend of mine who was at NXP, and he actually helped support DEFCON 15 through 18 for me because he was working there when, when it was Freescale. Um, and DEFCON 14, I'd use microchips. That was a different group of people. So I call up my friend and say, hey, surprise, you know, nine years later, I'm doing another DEFCON badge. And he's like, wow, like he never thought that would happen. And I just said, hey, like what cool technologies do you have that you think a DEFCON attendees would appreciate, like would think are cool? So he just listed out a bunch of stuff. And he's like, yeah, you know, we have one group that's doing this infamy stuff. Um, but you're going to have to convince them to, for you to use it. Like, you know, they only deal with high volume customers. Their, their group is very small. I think there's eight of them. Uh, and you know, you just have to convince them. Maybe they'll do it. Maybe not. I can't make any promises, but I'll make the introduction. So I wrote this email explaining DEF CON and how, you know, it's a cool audience that are willing to learn new things. And I think people would be excited because it's like this crazy technology that most people will never, ever see. And, uh, it is also in some high end, um, headsets. To, to, to have like Bluetooth to one side and then that one side of the head to the other side of the head with infamy. But it was just like something so cool. And I guess my writing was desperate enough where they're like, okay, sure, let's, yeah, we can do that. And uh, and hooked up with those guys and, and just well, started that process. If you get an email from the Kingpin, you're going to respond. That's right, yeah. 
if you get it from Kingpin. And it was it was funny because I was like, yeah, you know, I'm a hacker, but I'm also a professional design engineer. If you give me the the resources and the documentation, like I'll try not to bug you too much because I understand that you're busy. Because I figured, you know, if it's in the docs, I can find it and figure it out and work with it. Um, which to, to the most point was true, but eventually, you know, when it came to crunch time, it was like, oh, this is hard. Like this is really, the documentation's great, but it's still hard. Um, so we had a, you know, a bunch of back and forth emails of like highly technical subject matter of like, you know, there was some of their code, some of their documentation didn't quite explain some of the packets say within I squared C and how I had to do different things to load the firmware in. Or um, I found a bug in the system at the last minute uh, because the radio chip was re- was was responding or handling all I squared C traffic when it was really just should be looking at the ones that were addressed to it. Uh, which was a simple code change to, to just physically disconnect the, the switch matrix inside of the chip. But it was like all these things, and it's a very, very complicated side of the board. That, that subsystem um, is just hardcore, and uh, they were great. I mean, they just you know really supported, supported me. I will say, too, before I forget, like this project stretched every side of my engineering fabric. Like it at some points made me question why I'm even – an engineer, like why did I even choose this path? Like engineering's horrible. But then it also, um, at the you know, once I solved the problems and, and things were working, it like really um, strengthened my my. It gave me more confidence as an engineer because I was I, I was able to use BGA and it worked, and I was able to troubleshoot this ridiculously complex board where I wanted it to look as simple as possible. But every time I got it, you know, some sort of bug, I was like, all right, you know, instead of freaking out about it, I would sit down and set up my test equipment as I needed to, you know, write some code that I needed to do, whatever it was, set up my breakpoints and just find the root cause of that problem. And it really strengthened that debugging process and gave me that confidence of like, all right, maybe I should be an engineer. Even if I don't like it all the time, like this is probably what I'm designed <laughs> to do or something like what, what, you know, what, just what my, what my, what my path is supposed to be or whatever, whatever it is. Um, so that, that was sort of cool at the same time. But now that I'm done, it's like, all right, maybe I should just go, like, you know, live in a cave in nature and not come out. With a bunch of crystals. Yeah, with a bunch of crystals. Because I'm, like, <laughs> I was so on the edge of burning out this whole year. And, yeah, I mean, totally, like, just wrap myself in, in crystals and, like, grow a long beard and become wise, you know, w- one with the world. Uh, which, of course, won't happen because I'll probably start working on stuff, you know, tomorrow. And then (laughs) next year we'll talk again and I'll be even more gray and have similar stories or something. But, you know, it honestly just sounds like you need a vacation. I do. I need a vacation. And um, but, you know, as being an engineer, like I already have ideas for future projects, whether or not it's going to be a DEF CON badge or something else. There's always something in my head. Right. And as engineers, it's sort of like it's our goal to get those from our head to reality. And people might use them. People might not. But I just keep having ideas and I keep having thoughts in my head and I need to do something with them. It's a curse. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a curse. And also the amazing thing about engineering. It is, right? It, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, so what made you go with the KL27 microcontroller? Because that is a very interesting choice. Sure. So so the, the main functionality of the board was the Infamy chip. Like everything started mm-hmm. with the Infamy chip. Um, once I worked with, with NXP, their reference design for Infamy was based on an LPC 1115, which is another general okay. purpose microcontroller of some sort. That's like a Cortex M0, I think. I think so. What I wanted to do is 
basically take their their reference design, their evaluation board, and just shrink it down. Um, but there was no available stock of this LPC 1115. Because I figure, like, whatever the microcontroller is, I'll be able to learn how to use it, right? It's usually, like, mm-hmm. the development tools are going to abstract enough for you where you don't necessarily need to understand just, all these You just change the header and hit compile. Yeah, it works, exactly, right? yeah. It, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Um, but at least it's a start, right? I mean, at, at some point, every micro is going to have peripherals that you have to configure. A lot of GUIs now, the IDEs, will have a, a, a nice way for you to set the different pin states and all these things. It's still not as comfortable as Arduino. You know, as much as people make fun of Arduino. Um, the fact that you can go into a dropdown and select a different board and yes, about 99% of the time it compiles still. Yes. That's pretty amazing. And and that like when you want to use UART, you type a command, you know, start UART or whatever it is or start I squared C. Like all the low level, the bare metal stuff is done for you. And that is a huge, a huge benefit. Even though people make fun of it for being color by number, paint by number, whatever it is, or like the libraries are not good or whatever, like it's still a great platform to develop with. And bare metal is no joke. Like to even get UART working, to get I squared C working, to get interrupts working, to get um, flash memory storage working, everything was like a you know eighteen to twenty hour day, four a.m. staying up till four a.m. like trying to get stuff working. Um, so it was just really painful. Um, but what ended up I always, happening? I always suggest. When like you're starting with a new project or a new, um, a new piece of hardware, I actually generally I it used to be the prop parallax propeller. Right. I would do a lot of my prototyping in that, but now I use Arduino. That's where we met using yes. the prop, right? That was it. The yeah. Propeller uh, Expo. Yes. Do are you excited for the prop too? Uh, I'm excited <laughs> because they're gonna have another. <laughs> Because they're going to have another propeller expo <laughs> yeah. so we can go and hang out. Like, I'm not, you know, I haven't really been keeping track of it. It's something, it might be useful for things. I don't I don't know if, if hardcore, you know, it's going to be in a lot of products. I think it has some interesting capabilities. It has debug, which is what I'm excited about. Yes. I'll probably use it and poke around with it. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, the stuff I usually design is going to be lower power, lower cost, um, you know, real deep embedded stuff like this badge where the P2... Or an Arduino generally isn't going to work because of power consumption issues and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm, I'm curious about it, but I'm most looking forward to their expo whenever they have one so we can all go there again. We had them on, we had Ken and Chip on the podcast, oh, what, four or five months ago? Yeah, oh, a few nice. months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Shout, out, shout, out to Ken and, shout out to Ken and Chip. Congrats on finally that getting was a, Silicon That was now. a great podcast. And, Those and, guys are um, awesome. They 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 invited us to the the expo whenever it whenever happens. Whenever it happens. Yeah. I just think I, I think it's great that those guys, you know, they're brothers and they're but they're so different in their mindset. And I just I love it. And I you know, when their dad was around, um, he was a, another great addition to Parallax and like those three. It really was this family business and they were doing and they are doing what they love to do and not following any particular direction. And like that's pretty that's pretty hardcore. And, yeah, if you know, I had to work, if I had to work with my brother, I'd go insane. Yeah, no, I mean they're great about it, and like I've, you know, I've worked with them for since like 2003. They've been they've been selling some of my products, and it's it just just they're good, honest people. And there's not a lot of there's not a lot of people like that, right? So I guess on that point too, I'm you know looking forward to buying their part so I can actually kind of kick back to what they're doing because I think that's important. All right, so back to. Yes, you were saying you were saying like you normally are using the. <laughs> oh yeah, so I usually I used to use the Parallax propeller for a lot of stuff, but now I've, I've kind of switched over to the AT Sam D. 
which is a um, it's actually it's what's on the Arduino M0 platform. Okay. So I can use Arduino to prototype new hardware and then go, okay, now I can switch over to Atmel Studio, do the low level stuff for the actual product. Yeah, that that's generally a good way to go is you start higher level and then you can narrow down. Um, but so so it turns out that the LPC 1115 wasn't available. Like there weren't 30,000 that we could buy uh, to start working with. You so, know, it, it's funny about that is there's usually not 30,000 of anything. No, there's not. Like that's a lot of <laughs> that's a lot of parts. Like um, I'm actually surprised NXP had 30,000 of these inf- inf- infamy the infamy chips. chips. Yeah, so um some of those were allocated to another customer and they were able to pull some Did strings you hack and basically them away from them. They were they hacked them away. They sort of snuck them away for us. And uh, somehow that's really great for for the kind of lower volume thing that they were that they pulled strings for you. It was it was great. It was really I mean it was it was amazing. And, but I think they saw the value in DefCon and that new audience. And like NXP ended up sending an engineer, an actually like a real life engineer, um, to DefCon to hang out in the hard racking village and show people how to get the development tools set up and help them with their badges, the technical issues, and everything. And like it saved me a lot of trouble because. I, I like creating things and then letting people use them. Like, I don't like necessarily the customer support side, which is why I don't sell my own products. I was about to um, say, you don't like support. <laughs> I don't like support. And, and I'm not those, like... Those dang customers. I'll just, plain and simple, I don't like support. I will do it, of course. But if somebody else can do it for me, that's better. Um, and, you know, running around DEF CON is hard. And and I feel like having having somebody from NXP, like, they sent him there, you know? And, like, that's that's really awesome that they were able to do that. Um, which let me focus more on just kind of seeing how people were doing and and passing passing them over to to this guy. Um, so so yeah, that was cool. Um, but yes, they reallocated some of the infamy chips for us. But now then I had to find a microcontroller. And the reason I could sort of choose whatever micro I wanted is we had kind of separated this badge into two systems. One was the the kind of UI user you know front end part that controlled the LEDs and all of that. Um, and then there was the infamy side, the radio side. The Infamy chip actually has its own ARM core in it, and most customers, you know, the high-volume hearing aid customers and everything, will write their code that goes inside the ARM inside the Infamy chip. Um, but all of that, you know, the Infamy side requires non-disclosure agreements, and they don't want to release their code of the radio. So we sort of came up with the solution of like, all right, well, DEFCON is all about sharing and open source, um, but it, but we want to use your chip. How are we going to do that if you're not going to let us release the data for your chip? And they said, well. We'll write some code for the chip, and we sort of treat that as a black box, and we'll just send, if there's a valid packet read, we'll send that data over a UART interface, and then we'll use some I.O. pins as interrupts to wake up the host microcontroller. So it's sort of like if you think of any other peripheral chip you buy, it's basically a black box, and that's what we did in this case is turn this like highly configurable radio into a black box, um, which means if we're just using UART and some some IO pins, and then I squared C to load the firmware into it at, at the beginning on PowerUp. We can pretty much use any any micro we want. Um, one of their other boards used, they had a board called the Freedom. Um, it was the Freedom KL27. They have a bunch of low-cost different development boards that actually were Freescale boards rebranded as NXP. Um, they had a Freescale, or sorry, a, um, a Freedom KL27 board that some of the guys in Belgium had said, yeah, this, this ship should probably work. And we we have <laughs> and, you know we have stock of it, so we just sort of took it because that was available. It was a low cost part. Um, it was available. We got it through Future Electronics, who was our, our distributor for this. Um, 
And actually, that was like the only part that was available because we had Future look for other low low cost parts that had the the, the memory size and the and the peripherals that we needed. That was the only part available. So we bought all the possible stock we could of of that part, and then it crammed them together, and magically it worked. And it turns out it's a great part, super powerful. Like to be able to reconfigure the pins for the peripherals, um, as painful as it was to get everything working. Like the libraries part of the SDK was pretty good for low level um, stuff. It, 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 it was a nice part. I'll probably use it again um, just because now I have this code base set up and I understand how to use the part. Um, it was, yeah, it was surprisingly nice. I, I should mention, I originally, the KL27 also has USB functionality built in. And I wanted to have the user interface be a USB connection so then more people can just plug in a USB you know, port cable to it and have an interactive menu or a way to mess around with the badge. Um, but it turns out this was caught by one of the engineers at Future when they were doing a schematic review for me of in order to run USB, the USB core has to be at 3.0 or 3.3 volts and or greater. And I'm running at 1.8 volts. Um, my battery is a three volt, you know, CR2032 coin cell. So it's at three volts, but it would drop down to two volts uh, at end of life. So I couldn't run the USB off of that directly. So he, he caught that, and that was right before I, I started routing the board and sending it out to Fab. Actually, I probably was already routing the board at that point um, for the prototype. So I had to switch from USB to UART. So the KL27 has the USB functionality. I didn't use it, uh, and now I just have a 1.8-volt UART on there that was easy enough. We bought a bunch of headers, and people could solder them on, and you get you know an interactive way to mess with the badge. And when you complete the, the badge quest, which is the concept for this, for this badge, it unlocks additional functionality that you could then use kind of to mess with other people and do fun things like that. Defcon style things. Defcon style. Like, yeah, you know, you, you do this, you, you finish the, the normal design and then it's like, all right, let's do a, a little bit of, you know, basic hardware hacking, uh, which to, you know, 30,000 people, 28,000 people like soldering a header is hardware hacking. Like that's, that's their entry point to hardware hacking. Um, so it gives them something where they can phys physically interact with the board, make them feel like they've modified it in some way, and then discover some additional functionality. And a lot of people did that, and it was like it was pretty cool. I was worried that people would be like, "Oh, it's a UART lame," um, but actually, I think <laughs> I, th I think it was better because some people were like, "Well, how do I plug it into my computer? Like, I don't see a USB connection because that's what they're used to seeing, you know, on most complex badges, most complex devices, any sort of product." So this was a great teaching experience of like, look. If you're hacking on a circuit board, you might not see a USB interface, but there's probably going to be a UART interface on there that's going to give you debug output or console access or administrator access or diagnostic mode or bootloader menu or root shell or whatever it is. So this is a great experience for people to, to learn, you know, the right pins to connect and find the UART and do something with it. So it's almost like it's the simplified board made it better for people to learn with because you're not force feeding and, and feeding them everything that they need. So I got a question. How how did this design evolve knowing that 30,000 plus people were going to be wearing this around their neck and it being hit around and yeah. Yeah. So basically banging the living hell out of the hardware. Right. And it, it, yeah. And, and while I wanted to use like the most fragile, tiny components possible. Exactly. <laughs> so which, which those two things don't go together. Um, so what I really wanted to do is on this badge, we had a unique kind of mounting method where we have these two giant high current jumper bars that I'm using as lanyard straps. So if you see a lot of the pictures online, the lanyard slides through the straps and 
holds the badge above, like sitting on the lanyard, not on the lanyard clip. And the, the real intent of that was like, well, you know, with all the badge life stuff, people always have a bunch of other badges that they're wearing that are clipped to the clip. Like, let's move up the stack and bring our board a little higher up and have it be a little more stable up on, on the lanyard part. So that moved it out of the way from a lot of the, the banging that happens when you're walking around. Um, I also tried to place the components as far as I could away from where the lanyard goes. So where any of that interference or, or kind of where would happen. Um, and the badge does, it, it bounces around a little bit, but way, way less than, than if it's down lower, I guess physics or something. Um, but we had three main points of failure. And this is something that we sort of anticipated. Uh, so we had extra components to let people fix their own. And the, the main things were like the lanyard straps would sometimes get pulled off if you didn't mount it through the through the the lanyard properly like a lot of people would just clip on to the top lanyard strap and then their badge was dangling on the lanyard which makes a lot of force back and forth we do have via stitching on those lanyard pads but um sometimes the, the entire pad would still get pour, pulled off the board uh so i sort of attribute that to like user error or not you know <laughs> following twitter because we mentioned and posted a picture of like the right way or like not going to the presentation. And over the time at DEF CON, people started mounting it better. Uh, so we had a few, actually not that many failures of that, but we had extra straps that they could solder down and everything. That was no big deal. The battery was the other one, the battery clip. I learned this and I don't exactly know the science behind it, but apparently like these gold plated battery holders that you get, you know, coin cells and everything. Gold plating is great for connectivity, say, for, you know, on the, on the pads where the battery goes to it, but gold plated is not great for solder adhesion. Um, and there's something called like, is it gold embrittlement? I think it's called where- That sounds correct. Where the, 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 you probably know this better than I do, but like the gold pad doesn't really adhere well to the solder. And that's just a fact of this gold plating. So we had a, a, just a handful of failures of the, of the CR2032 coin cell holder popping off. And that's no big deal because that's another easy one to solder. Um, and then the main component that would pop off was the antenna. Uh, those antennas, have a very small uh, uh, footprint or I guess, you know, connection area of the part. Even if you had a massive footprint, it wouldn't matter because there's only a tiny area of the actual antenna that's making physical contact to that pad. Um, so those those fell off a little bit and that was probably the most common failure and we had thousands of extra of the, of the antennas um, and probably, you know, maybe 50 people at the conference went and fixed theirs. So we didn't really anticipate for any we knew people were going to mount these in different ways and, and bash on them and everything. But my, my sort of response was, well, they're going to work when you get them. Uh, everything else is up to you. If something breaks, this is DEF CON. Like, it's the perfect place to go learn. Like, go to the Hardware Hacking Village, teach yourself how to solder, have somebody teach you how to solder, and, like, try to put stuff back on um, because it empowers you, right? And that was the thing. I wasn't doing it to be a dick. Uh, I was doing it <laughs> partially because I don't like doing support, but it's mostly to, you know... <laughs> <laughs> to empower other people of like this is this is your piece of electronics it's a high tech super fragile piece of jewelry that you're you know, going like, to get drunk and then slam it into yeah a, like if you slam a, it it's like that's what you get for drinking machine. yeah you know it's like if you do that that's that's uh, that's on you but it well, empowers also people. we didn't we we didn't mention that these badges are meant to be like clicked together in a way like well I mean, yeah, yeah they, so that's that that's the other thing they they did they were meant to interact um, but it's funny because the human nature, I don't know exactly how this happened, but people thought that you had to physically connect them or physically touch them. I think because when I said magnetic induction, they sort of thought magnet and with magnet, you need to touch them together. 
but the only similarity is like a magnet has a magnetic field and this coil has a magnetic field, but you don't have to touch them. But people are actually like kissing their badges together, which to me was, it was making me nervous because you have two gemstones connecting, you know, and like it's glass on glass. Like that doesn't sound good to me and they could shatter, but people did it, seemed fine. Um, communication actually works better when you're a little bit further apart. So you're in in the actual magnetic field and not too close to the actual uh, coil part. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like all these things that you can't anticipate. Like I didn't anticipate that somebody would clip onto the lanyard strap or that they would touch their badges together. I, I thought about more of the use of like what they would do when they got it and realize, oh, there's an antenna. It probably has to communicate or something. But all the human use, like it's a great, I don't know if it's like a sociology study or like a just a humanity study of like you can never plan for what somebody's actually going to do with your product even if you know it's a constrained environment like a badge you just still don't know what they're going to do so it was really like a learning experience for me but also at the same time since i really wanted to do this particular build i almost didn't care what was going to happen because i just wanted it to to be this way but yeah, there definitely were, were some, and people now are still tweeting like, oops, mine came off during traveling. Uh, I got to fix the antenna. And the antenna is not something you can just buy on DigiKey, unfortunately. Uh, so I know a lot of the manufacturers reps are going to get a lot of phone calls from hackers, you know, asking for replacements. Samples. And, uh, one-offs. Samples, one-off. And hopefully, hopefully they'll be cool with that because we did buy a whole lot of these. Uh, the Hardware Hacking Village does have extras. So if you wait a year, you can go back and, you know, and put it back on. On its own, it doesn't, you know, if you just have your badge sitting, if you only have one, it doesn't really matter if your antenna's there because there's nothing to communicate with. But if people have more than one or they want to build some project, it would be nice if they work. Um, and, I, you know, what I should have done is just kept, like, a reel in my lab so people, you know, kind of covertly could be like, hey, Joe, do you have an extra antenna? Um, and I could send them one, but, like, I didn't, I didn't think that far ahead, and that would require being, like, customer service, which for a project <laughs> like this, it's sort of like... It's, you know, the Sorry. project is, it's done and it's like, okay, time to hack your own, make your own coil or find, you know, social engineer one or whatever it is. Uh, because that's just the hacker way. You know, it's like another thing I noticed is a little bit of a rant, but like DEF CON is growing a lot. And that means a lot of people that maybe aren't as technically inclined, maybe they don't know how to solder. Maybe they don't, don't even know what an electronic badge is. Um, so it really is, it, you know, it's something where you really want to push people to to think creatively and get out of their comfort zone, get out of their comfort zone and try something and, and explore and learn. And, you know, I got a lot of questions about things and my answer was like, try it and see what happens. Right. Because that's how you learn. Not from, not from me telling you the answer. And that's actually what I kind of liked about this year's badge was the, um, cause I, I got a press badge for the podcast and you became like the most important people for someone to hunt out. Because there was right. not a lot of green <laughs> yeah, the, badges. The press became popular. Imagine. Yeah, that. <laughs> exactly. And only and so I got Def to meet. Con. I got to meet a lot of people because basically someone would say, "Hey, can I bump your badge?" Right. And I'd be like, "I got to give you my elevator speech about Macrofab first. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, I, so. Then I will. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so. I guess we should explain just like the general concept of the badge, right? We didn't do that, did we? Uh, no, a little bit, but yeah, we can go more into it. Yeah. Okay, so so just so people understand, like, why why were they even going up to a press person in the first place? So the concept for the badge is similar to the DEF CON China one, where we wanted to create something where the attendees could kind of meet each other and, and kind of work towards this communal um, quest. So each badge has a badge quest, 
And there's a series of states. Um, there's seven different states. The first one is what I call a tracked mode where the lights just blink every once in a while in a certain pattern. That pattern spells out DEFCON in the in the way in the the, the the way the LEDs are are turned on or off, uh, sort of to mimic the shape of a D and an E and an F and a C and an O and an N. When you first communicate with any badge, that brings you to the next state. From that point forward, you have five tasks that you have to complete at DEFCON. And the goal of this, like I thought about when I created this, I'm like, okay, DEFCON is massive. Like if I was going to DEFCON for the first time, what would I what would I want to do? I'd probably want to see a talk. I'd want to go to a contest. I'd want to go to a village. I'd want to go to a party. I'd want to go to see like a, a, a concert, arts and entertainment. Um, so the, the quest, part of this quest is to, is to go to each of those five tasks and experience DEF CON, you know, do those things and then find a goon in those areas. The goons are the volunteers that work at DEF CON. Uh, they had what I call magic tokens and those were specific to the task. So speaker goons had the, the speaker token. Uh, the village goons had the village token. Um, and you would go up to them and say, hey, you know, I just saw this talk. Can I get a scan of your token? And that would bring you to the next state. So it was a way to get people to go through DEF CON, interact with people, talk to the goons, uh, you know, appreciate the goons. Because a lot of times people working behind the scenes never get credit that they deserve. Uh, the conference sort of goes on, but you don't realize that there's hundreds of people actually making that happen. So it gave them a little bit of, you know, street cred. Uh, but also kind of mobbed them at the same time because once people realized, oh, I got to find the goons with the magic tokens, all those goons like were prevented from doing their job because they were just scanning tokens all day. Um, but it made it more fun. Like it was sort of this interactive thing. And then the final state, once you did your five tasks, which could be done in any order, the final state was to find one of each color gemstone, press being one of them, uh, and either scan them all together, which I thought was more fun. I call that group chat. Um, or you find one, you know, individually you scan each color gemstone and that will bring you, that will, you'll win the game. You get a little surprise song and unlock the extra functionality, a little animation on the, on the display. Um, but it was funny to see how when people, you know, you could, you could learn all of this by looking in the source code, but people didn't look in the source code. So they were like running around all conference, scanning everybody's badge, everything, not realizing that that was only helpful on that final stage, uh, which was another sort of human nature side which i just didn't anticipate of people you know running around scanning each other uh but it was meant to be very simple and you know inclusive um and let everybody kind of get involved in it uh and keep it simple and i think what happened though too is a lot of people had expected you know these very complex puzzle badges and things like that that have been kind of the norm over the past few years but i'm just not like that like i'm not a puzzle person I'm, i suck at puzzles uh and my mindset is 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 different like i have an engineering mindset it's just very straight, no tricks, you know, very clean cut, no trick thing. Um, but doing that tricked people. Well, that it did. It, it tricked people because people were still <laughs> coming up to me thinking I had a special badge or I had a special thing. And I was like, no, no, no. Like this is created for you to go out and explore. Like I didn't, I didn't want to involve myself and be part of that puzzle because that felt weird. Like I'm just a designer of one, one portion of this massive conference. Um, but people, you know, I think a lot of times were overthinking it and, and sort of they thought I was not telling the truth. They thought I was tricking them by saying I wasn't part of it when I really was or whatever. Like it was pretty funny to see. And I had a great time. Like it was it was a lot of work and, you know, all day, every day. But it was just so fun to to see people running around and playing with the badge and trying to scan my badge and like 
asking, you know, for autographs and asking questions. Like, it was just cool. Like, it was really, it's, it was like, a, you know, a nerd engineer's dream to be be appreciated, you know, for a project. I should have gotten you to time, sign my badge. Yeah, I mean, did I sign yours? No. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, most of the time we're sitting in, in labs, right, or sitting in an office and we work on a project and it goes out the door and your name is never on it. Nobody knows the names of the people that worked on some of the most popular products out there. You know, like Apple, at least on the Mac, like people had their signatures injection molded inside the case. But engineers don't really get respect like that, except at DEF CON and except at like, you know, hacker conferences and maker conferences. So it really was like kind of a fun, a fun thing, even though I, that's not why I do it. Like I don't look for the, for, for appreciation, but I appreciate the appreciation, you know, like I think that's pretty cool that that my peers saw the the coolness of it and like I could finally share that passion with other people because you know my family they understand what I do but like they're not technical and they don't really need to know every low level bit when I'm like look I did the via stitching on the thing to do the blah 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 like they don't really they're like great you know um but at defcon like that's a cool thing and so it it felt really good uh I don't know what's going to happen in future years, but, you know, this was this was kind of a really it was definitely a a crash course into reminding me how hard this stuff is. And like it's called badge life for a reason. Right. Like it takes over your life. It consumes your life. For me, it was definitely not a a mentally healthy year. Um, And it it like literally drove me into the ground a bunch of times. And um, even at DEF CON, I was close to having like a massive meltdown of just the overwhelming nature of it and and all the effort that went into it. Uh, but it it turned out okay. And I think future years just needs a little more balance of like, doesn't have to be complex stuff. Uh, it just has to be something that people can enjoy and use and then something that isn't gonna consume my life or like shorten my life. You know, like it's <laughs> yeah. not worth, no project is worth shortening your life over, right? Or like not seeing What if it's a project over. that ex- eventually extends your life? But if it shortened mine and I wasn't able to use it, I don't know. I don't know if yeah. I would do it. But it's you, like, you know. You know, you know a, a quick suggestion is um, the next time you have something huge on the horizon, go back and listen to this podcast and hear yourself say what you just said. Yeah. Just because, like, <laughs> the tendency with, with engineering is just like, well, the next one is going to be bigger, right? So I'll just yes, do more. And, but it's also, you can say the next one's going to be simpler, but it never is. Like, it, there's never, always going to be ever. some issue. But I think nothing is worth... Um, you know, missing out on having dinner with your kids or like saying goodnight to your kids or seeing your family or whatever it is. Like the engineering, like it was such hardcore engineering that I was in my office for 18 or 20 hours a day to get it working because my goal, I agreed to this project, like it had to be done. And that's what it required. And my wife even was like, I was complaining to her about it. She's like, you signed up for this. Like this is your world. And you said you could do it, so go do it. And, you know, come back when you're done. And six months later, I said hello to her, and I was like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> that's, some, that's some good uh, uh, encouragement from the wife unit. There. It, was, it was very, yeah, I mean, it was, she was really understanding. And I, and I was at one point complaining, like, I'm missing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm traveling, or I'm here, and I'm working on this. I'm missing, you know, what our kids are doing. And she's really like, well, you know, you're really not missing much. Like, they're just kind of... <laughs> whining and misbehaving and fighting or whatever so but it's still like it it would be nice to be around and you definitely need to have a balance of engineering and your family and normally my balance is running like I will go running and then I will work 
Um, but this this project got me so into it that I even stopped running, which for people that know me is like, whoa, like that's abnormal. Yeah, it's a little but, weird. But my mind was so focused on this project, I could not, I literally could not do anything else. Um, so there, I have to work on that, like figure out a balance. I, I tried to do some meditation. I think that's going to help if I can like actually do it um, and sit with it. But I'm always on, I'm always doing something. So it's like, I just got to settle down and future projects need to have balance. And I think people also need, to, you know, other people need to probably have that same sort of thing, conversation of like, I have to balance it. Um, but it was fascinating to see it in use. And like, I'm happy with how it turned out. I'm super happy with how people used it and appreciated it. And and loved it and like I got some great feedback and great comments and like it made me feel really good and I think made other people feel really good and that was the intent you know just build a community and, and let people have fun and explore and like try new things and and uh and it really worked for that so based on the talk you gave this year and you did like release some information early about the badge which is really unusual about defcon right do you think because of that, do you think DEF CON is going to change their policy regarding digital badges in the future? Um, um, because basically you released this like information or like how to like talk to the serial. Like it was one sure, like the, Yeah, like the tools you needed. So yeah. I will say and so that. When you did that, like everything on Amazon went out of stock within that's a right. day. So I would say that it, that it <laughs> I would say that it, 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 there wasn't a policy. Um, it was the choice of the designers. So if okay. you look at, besides DEF CON 14, which we did as a complete surprise, um, 15 through 18, when I was working on the projects, I would post on the forums, here are the tools that we're using. We didn't have Twitter. Like, you know, it was a much smaller distribution channel. But the, the tools you needed and, the, like, the main processor, like, that was never a secret because we wanted people to be able to go and get the right, tools, the right tools and yeah. hack on it because I was also hosting a badge hacking contest where people... We wanted them to modify their badge and do new, do cool things and not have them waste half their con trying to find the right tools. So there was never a policy about that. The policy really has been to keep it secret enough so you don't spoil the fun for people that stand in line for, for two days. Uh, not because they have to, because registration is so smooth now. It's, it's ridiculous how amazing it is. Um, but because they want to. You know, They have line con and they sleep there and talk and have fun. But they like the surprise of being the first to get the, get the badge and look at it. So we don't want to spoil that by by releasing too much, but I always want to release as much as I possibly can, um, or at least the tools, or at least something to get people going. I even met with with um, with Leap Bunny from, uh, uh, oh shoot, is that his handle from Hardware Hacking Village? I only know his name, and I think it's Leap Bunny. That might be somebody else. But anyway, he runs Hardware Hacking Village. Sorry, Chris. Um, <laughs> he's probably going to listen to this. He runs Hardware Hacking Village, and I actually went to go meet with him in person. Um, and with Skyria, um, his partner, and, and show him the badge. So he was the first person outside of DEF CON to see it because I wanted him to be prepared of the main functionality and how it worked and the tools you needed and all of that stuff too so they could get prepared. And apparently, you know, he was like, this is the first time that we've ever known since Hardware Hacking has existed, uh, Hardware Hacking Village, of what we need to do to prepare because they usually get thrown under the bus and get surprised at the last minute. Uh, but, you know, to me, this is stuff that, doesn't need to be a secret. It needs to be out there so people can can prepare and have fun because that's the point: is having fun, not making everything a secret. Um, but for these for these other years that I wasn't involved, it was just you know up to the designer of how of what they wanted to release and if they want to be more more secret or less or how hackable the badge was or not. And like, I have no say in that stuff. But as long as I'm involved um, and as long as there's a hardware component to it, like I'll just release what I feel is a a, a fair enough amount of information 
to not spoil it, uh, but let people at least be prepared. And so was there a design reason to not include a shitty add-on connector? Yes. Um, so I originally wanted to put one on there. And as I started kind of mocking up the board and prototyping the board, I realized like it just didn't go with the aesthetic design of, of, of the product. Like mm. having an SAO connector, it was it was going to be on the back of the board. And like that doesn't make any sense because the board's going to, you know, the badge is going to be mounted to your chest. The gemstone's going to be outward facing. The SAO connector is going to be stabbing you. Um, and then if you plug something into it, it would be you on the back see and no one would see it. So yeah. I love I love the SAO. I love the Badge Life community. And there's, you know, a hundred other projects at least that people did that support SAO. I didn't feel like the this badge had to do that because... You know, technically, it's not well, it's not part of that ecosystem. It's like, you know, this is this yeah. is separate from that ecosystem. Um, there is the UART. There is the SWD connection. Like, people could have a way to do some SAO add-on if they wanted, but it just didn't fit with with the, with the intent of the design, right? And, I, and that's what, that was the main thing. And you, you had the lanyard set up so that you could easily add another badge down to below. the lanyard. Yeah, you add another you add another badge either to the lanyard or on the lanyard clip if there's other stuff. But I figured, yeah, I, I I was sort of expecting to get a little bit of flack for that, but it just didn't. Like I'm not gonna add stuff just because that's what's expected. Uh, that's just not my personality. And in this case, it was you know I tried for it, it just didn't make sense, so I took it off. And I was like, all right, you know I don't want to kill the battery by having an SAO on there. And I have these like super low power modes, and I spend a lot of time doing this power efficient stuff. And then you have this this thing connected to it that's drawing 30 milliamps and the battery dies in like two hours. Um, yeah. You know, there's it's just there's so many other badge life badges that that supported it. It was like I didn't need to I didn't need to, to put it in. It wasn't going to you know make anybody sad that it wasn't there. Um, and it turns out nobody nobody complained like it was totally fine. But I did. I, sh I should mention on the China badge that FPC connector also has a shitty add on uh, the shitty add on pins, the uh, power whatever power ground. Um, and I squared C. So I made a little shitty add-on adapter, like this little white board with an FPC connector on it that would plug into the side, and then it had the SAO break or the SAO female connector. So if somebody wanted to add a shitty add-on to their China badge, they could. The problem is there was no badge life community in DefCon China and no SAOs. So it was sort of like nobody <laughs> used it, but the capability is there. And um, DefCon in the US ended up selling some of the extra DefCon China boards. And there were some of the SAO connectors floating around and everything. So like it's it was there, but it turns out like there's there's a use for it if if it's part of that ecosystem of badges. And these mm -hmm. just really these just really weren't. You know, they were just separate to that. Yeah. So what do you want to see at DEFCON twenty eight? Oh, or is that question. too soon now? Uh, yeah, that too soon. Um, Rest and relaxation. I think I want to I want to see. Well, I don't want to spoil anything because I've already had some conversations. Um, I want to see, I want to see, you know, more simplicity and and more community involvement. You know, it's like the it was just so cool to see, especially first time DefCon attendees, um, start this quest and make friends at DefCon. Like, can you imagine how hard it would be going to a conference of thirty thousand people and knowing zero, knowing nobody? Um, it's bad enough, like, yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, Steven, it's like going to, it's like starting, a, you know, going to school for the first time. Like nobody likes being uh, new, right? The new guy or the new girl or whatever. 
Um, so it, it gave, it gave them something. And I think that community involvement like really helped. So I don't know what, what I would really like to see, but, um, I would like to be involved if it's not going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I got, I got partially one more joking, partially serious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I got, Oh, I actually have two questions left. Sure. Who's a better engineer, Matt Damon from the Martian or Matt Damon from interstellar? If you've seen oh, those man. movies. So I haven't seen either one, but what about like Matt Damon from Goodwill Hunting? Is that Is a valid answer? He's a mathematician in Goodwill. He's a mathematician, Hunting, like Okay. I, I don't know, like he he knew he knew his shit. And um and I'm from Boston, so I like that movie. I would say that's a valid answer. Yeah, okay, good. Valid. At least it had Matt Damon in it. I, I haven't seen those other two movies. Or should I watch them? Like, is that a bad you thing? You should that I seen them? watch them. They're I, really I good. I would personally say watch The Martian, maybe not in Interstellar. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then I, and then, I guess I'll do that this week while I'm relaxing. Yes. And <laughs> Joe, where can our listeners find out more about you? So my main kind of public-facing out, outpost um, is Twitter. So I'm at Joe Grand on Twitter, J-O-E-G-R-A-N-D, like $1,000, not like a big burrito. Um, I don't post often <laughs> on Twitter, but it's basically like, hey, here's a here, like the documentation's released for a project, or here's this, or here's that. Um, I don't really communicate much on it. Uh, at DEF CON, I did. Like, that's the rare thing. Like, I would respond to tweets, and I would post a lot more than I normally do. I really use it as like a low-traffic way to share kind of what I'm working on. Uh, or what's been released, but that's definitely the best way. Um, my website is grandideastudio.com. Uh, that has a list of like my currently scheduled events where I'm going to be in public. Uh, it has news articles. It has, of course, all my what I call portfolio items. So all the projects I've worked on, the products, um, details of those. If they're open source, there's going to be lots of information about the products. The DefCon um, badges are on there. There is a little search engine on there, so you could just search DEFCON China, DEFCON 27, or go to you know the, port, the miscellaneous portfolio section and, and look there. Uh, but I try to put everything that I possibly can on that site. It's not the easiest to navigate. I'm actually working on an update to that that eventually will come out to make it a little bit easier to kind of find the projects and find the documentation. Um, but yeah, those are the two ways, you know, Twitter and website. Um, there is a contact form on my website. So if you do want to contact me outside of Twitter, it's probably recommended. Like I don't have Twitter on my phone. So go to the contact page, send me an email through that, and then um, I'll respond. I do try to respond to everybody's email at least once. Sometimes they get a little out of hand and I stop responding. Um, but it's not because I don't like you. It's just because <laughs> more emails come in. And it might take a month or two. Like I have some emails that are like four months old because they're not super urgent. I will eventually respond to everything. Uh, it just, you know, life and badges get in the way. So th thank you so much, Joe, for coming on our podcast and taking some time from your, you know, R and R to come <laughs> talk to us. Well, I appreciate I appreciate you having me on again, and thanks to everybody who's still listening. Almost what an hour and a half in. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's it's a great kind of community that we're in, and and people are doing a lot of really cool stuff, and the resources are out there, and like it's just. It's a fun time to be in this world, you know, and like to see what people are doing and, and pushing the limits of stuff. Like it's exciting, not just from a badge creator point of view, but just from a, a connoisseur of this stuff, you know, and from an actual engineer. Like it's it's pretty cool. So, yeah, thank thanks to everyone. And, and thanks to you guys. And you want to sign us out, Joe? Oh, yeah. OK, I'll sign you out. Um, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast.
I am, or I was, your guest, Joe Grand. <laughs> and we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Bye. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, with no O's, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.